This is, without a doubt, the most important day in the history of the world. I am convinced of that, and I hope you are as well, that this is the day that has defined history and changed not only the course of civilizations, but it has changed the course of countless individual lives, my life included. And I pray that your life has been changed by the power of Easter as well. We want to continue to consider the power of Easter this morning, the power of the resurrection in our lives, and I would invite you to bow with me as we begin. Father God, we come before you today with our hearts filled. Our hearts are filled, Lord, with so many different emotions and feelings. There's part of us that feels this this thrill of excitement. There's this joy of knowing that you are alive. And then, Lord, there's part of us that comes here and perhaps we've celebrated Easter many, many times before and we're finding it hard to muster up enthusiasm or joy and maybe there's part of us that feels like, Lord, why aren't I more excited about this day? And Lord, whatever attitude we are bringing with us here today, we know that you know our hearts, you know our spirits all together, and so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would meet each one of us where we're at. And that, Lord, if we're coming here today, perhaps even with a heart filled with a bit of doubt, did you really rise from the dead? Are you really alive? And are you really with me? And God, wherever we're at, we pray that you would meet us in a powerful way. So speak through your word, I pray. Speak through me, your servant, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. The name Nikolai Bukharin probably doesn't mean very much to most of you. But during his lifetime, he was one of the most powerful and influential men in the world. He was a Russian communist leader who played a key role in the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. He was personal friends with Vladimir Lenin and later helped Joseph Stalin ascend to power. He was a firm believer in the ideals of communism, and he used his genius intellect to promote its cause. Now, there's a story told about one journey he took from Moscow to Kiev in 1930 to address a huge assembly on the subject of atheism and to make the case for why modern man would be better off just leaving the outdated notion of God behind them, putting their faith in modern man's ability to craft a perfect utopian civilization and all of the ideals of communism would be better off if God was removed from the picture. And so addressing the crowd, he used his keen intellect, that genius mind, to make a scathing attack on Christianity. He hurled insults and arguments as to why God is only a fabrication of people's minds, and that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was nothing more than a cleverly devised hoax. And finally, a full hour later, well satisfied that he'd made his point, he paused looked out across the auditorium from left to right, and finally asked into the stillness, are there any questions? Silence hung in the air, thick. No one would move, let alone even daring to breathe. Are there any questions? A longer moment ensued. Silence still filled the auditorium. It was as though all the air had been sucked out. Who could dare to refute such a brilliant argument? Who could dare to fight the logic of such a genius mind. And for a long minute, no one moved. And suddenly, one man stood up, approached the platform, and mounted the lectern, standing near the communist leader. 
He surveyed the crowd first from left to right, and then he greeted them with the well-known Russian Orthodox Church tradition, his voice ringing out loud and clear, Christ is risen! And as one man, the entire auditorium stood up and gave the reply, He is risen indeed! And so today I want to say to you, Christ is risen. And you didn't do the standing up part, but I'll forgive you for that. It is an incredible thing to consider that here in this setting, where not only has one of the leaders of the party made a scathing attack for why God doesn't exist, why he needs to be removed altogether, that someone had the courage to come up in the face of such an argument, knowing that chances are the police are waiting for him on the way out and to still come up and make this declaration. Why? Why would he go out of his way to make a declaration like that when the cost was so high? Why would he do it if it were not true? And you see, since the very first Easter morning itself, countless men have attempted to deny, refute, or explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ as nothing more than a hoax or a cleverly devised fable. Communist Russia attempted to eradicate Christianity by outlawing it for nearly 70 years, persecuting it ruthlessly. Many other nations have made similar attempts. And for nearly two millennia, Christians have been persecuted and killed all over the world. Yet for all of the attempts to silence the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ... There are more followers of Jesus Christ on planet Earth today than at any other point in human history. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that none other than the power of the cross? How could it be possible for any other reason than that the message is true? Jesus is alive, and nothing and no one will ever be able to change that single fact. In fact, isn't that the whole reason why we're here today? If it weren't true, wouldn't we have just slept in this morning? There was no need to come here on a Sunday. No need for it at all. And yet, because we believe that it's true, we are here. And so today, I would invite you to join me at Calvary and at the Garden Tomb one more time to listen again to the words of the angels. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. For he is risen. Look and see the place where he was laid. Now, most of you are well aware that Leanne and I had the privilege this past month of traveling to Israel. And I'm going to ask John to cue up a picture here from our trip. Now, I'm going to just throw it out there that chances are some of you are probably already getting tired of me talking about the trip and showing pictures. But I just can't help myself. It was such an incredible experience. And so, on the first day of our trip, here's a picture of us. Uh, We are in the garden that is just outside what is today known as the Garden Tomb. This was, in fact, the final day of our 12-day journey through the Holy Land. And now, before I go any further, I should clarify that no one has yet been able to definitively prove with 100% certainty that this is the exact tomb in which Jesus was buried. But as our guide told us, the most important thing is not the exact location, but that it did happen. But now for many centuries, the other leading candidate 
for where Jesus was, was killed on the cross and where he was buried is where the Roman Catholics have built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And they've built this over the location they believe to have been the place of Jesus' crucifixion and burial. Now, there are a number of inconsistencies with the biblical description that has given some doubt to this claim of the the Church of the Holy Sepulchre being the exact location. And so when the garden tomb was unearthed in 1867, followed by more archaeological discoveries since then, Many scholars have come to believe that the garden tomb best fits the Bible's description of the place where Jesus died, was buried, and then came back to life. And I tend to agree. One of the main reasons for this is the physical features of the hill that stands right next to the garden itself. Get the next slide to come up. Let's see if it's going to work. I'll try one more time. Probably help if the switch was turned on. (laughs) No, maybe not. We'll try one more time. There we go. All right. Technology is great when it works and when you turn the on switch. Now, some of you may have seen this picture before. Uh, This is the face of the cliff on which Golgotha is located. Now, those of you who know your Bibles know that Golgotha means the place of the skull. Now, this is what first caught people's attention back in the 1800s, was when they came to this hill, and they looked at the face of the cliff, and they saw this impression on the face of it that resembled an uncanny resemblance to a human skull. And now erosion over the the centuries has actually washed out the bridge of the nose slightly. But if you still squint your eyes a little bit, you can just make out what looks like two eyes and a mouth in the center. And there it, it is this uncanny resemblance to a skull in the side of the hill. And so, of course, the Bible referred to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And so when you put all of the pieces of the puzzle together there's a very strong possibility that this was the exact location on the top of this hill where Jesus was crucified. For myself, just being able to stand there and to consider that if I were able to go back in time to that exact day, that exact moment in history, standing on that specific location, what things would I have seen? What would I have experienced as I would look up to the top of that hill A barren hill, a lonely cross, Jesus hanging there, bloodied and broken, struggling for every breath for six agonizing hours, not even permitted to suffer and die in peace, but instead surrounded by his enemies, surrounded by scornful Pharisees, cruel soldiers, and a jeering crowd, not including the passerbys, all united in their scorn of him, in their mockery, and in their thirst for blood. It was equally profound to then turn around and walk back into the peaceful garden, back towards the tomb, and to consider the tender way that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus dressed Jesus' body for burial and laid him in the grave. And this is where we turn next, is to the garden tomb itself. 
Now, the garden tomb, as you can see, has had some renovations made over time. The wall has been built up in front. The doorway has been cut slightly higher than it would have been originally. But archaeologists are certain that this tomb existed 2,000 years ago. And many of the facts about it fit the description of the tomb that is described in the Bible. For example, the angel is described as sitting on the right-hand side. That is where the burial chamber is located. It is described as being a new tomb in which no body had ever been laid. And only one of the three burial uh, beds are completed. The other two still needed more chiseling work to be done, thereby indicating this was an unfinished tomb, a new tomb. The other thing is that it was a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was extremely wealthy, a member of the Sanhedrin. And the the archaeologists have discovered that this was, in fact, a wealthy man's vineyard. There are massive cisterns underneath this garden, as well as a gigantic wine press, All of these things indicating that this was a man of wealth who owned this massive vineyard. And so it only bears to reason that Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, would have had a wealthy friend who he could carve his own family tomb on his property. Also, Golgotha is only located 100 meters to the east of this garden tomb. All of the things, the proximity, the description, fits exactly what the Bible has described. And so at this point of our tour, coming back to the garden tomb, we were given this tremendous opportunity to share in communion right next to the tomb itself. Now at this point of the journey, we've experienced so much, and my emotions are all over the place. And so I developed this clever strategy of keeping my sunglasses on so that no one could see if there were tears in my eyes. And I noticed that a few other people might have been doing the same thing. And so... There we were in the garden, next to this tomb. And after we've finished communion, we've sung a couple of songs, we're able to go in single file towards the tomb and to take our turn to go inside. And now if you've already read my article in the guide this past week, you already know what happens next. But don't ruin it for everyone else. So Matt Reimer was just ahead of me in the lineup. And when his turn came, rather than entering the tomb... Matt just stuck his head inside, took a quick look around, pops his head back out, and with a big grin on his face, declares, Nope, he's not in there. (laughs) And he just turned around and was happy as could be and walked away. Didn't even go inside. And now aside from the fact that that was completely unexpected, those words made my heart jump in my chest. Because it just reminded me of what the angels had said to the women nearly 2,000 years earlier. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He isn't here. He is risen. Look and see the place where he was laid. And so with my turn being next, well, I got that chance to look and see the place where he was laid. And this is exactly what I saw. That's what I saw. Is there anything there? It's empty. It is empty. To this day, it stands empty. Forever as testimony that he isn't there. Don't go looking for the living amongst the dead. Jesus is alive. And what a profound moment for me. And I want to thank you, Matt, for bringing that home for me in that moment. And thank you for being a good sport about it. (laughs) You know, there's something about just walking around in that place. And considering 
The women came in sorrow, expecting to find a dead Lord, someone who they'd put their faith in. But they left that day with joy. Their world was changed in an instant. And we came there that day not with a heaviness because we knew that Jesus was alive. I didn't need to see this to believe. But there was something about that place and leaving that day that I just floated out. I was at such peace. There was such an inner contentment and joy leaving that day. Just knowing he's alive. It's real. This isn't a cleverly devised fable. This isn't something I've just made up in my own mind. Jesus is alive. It's incredible to think. And so now, the door to the tomb, they've hung a door on it since. Of course, this isn't original, but it sums it up perfectly. This is what the door reads. He is not here, for he is risen. And so since then, I've been asking myself, what difference does the reality of Jesus' resurrection make in my life? What difference does it make? And I want to ask you the same question for contemplation this morning. If Jesus is really and truly alive, what difference does the reality of his resurrection make to you personally? Now, some of you who are here today, perhaps some of you are like Thomas, the disciple who, though he was told Jesus was alive, had his doubts. And he said, unless I can touch the the nail prints in his hands and the wound in his side, I won't believe. And maybe some of you are like Thomas. You're just not quite convinced. I'm up here telling you that it's true. But in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, you're just not sure. But I even want to ask you that if you were to become 100% convinced that Jesus did rise from the dead, that he is in fact alive, how do you think that would change your life? How do you think knowing that for certain would change your current reality? Would it only mean that we now show up to, Easter, to church on Easter morning? Is that it? Do we just have to show up once a year to remember? That's the only change that it makes? Or does it demand something more? Does it only mean that I now call myself a Christian and just carry on with life as usual? Does it demand something more than that? I believe that it does. And I believe that there are three principal things that truly embracing the reality of Jesus' resurrection will have on our lives. The first is this. It means that our sins are forgiven and we are assured of God's gift of salvation. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who willingly gave himself over to death, even to death on the cross. And in that act, he became the substitutionary sacrifice for all sins for all time. That means He became the substitute for you in your place. He took your sins upon himself, my sins. He took the judgment that we deserve, the wrath that our our bodies deserved for our sin. He took it on his own shoulders. And Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14 declares, You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. For he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing them to the cross. That's what Jesus did on the cross. The charge of all of your sins has been nailed with him in his body. Then having died once for all, he descended into the grave. The grave couldn't keep him. 
Death couldn't hold him. And by the power of God, he rose from the dead, never to die again. Then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for us on our behalf every single day and even at this moment. And you know what? One day soon, he will return again in triumph and in glory. And every eye shall see him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, everything has been accomplished. Everything has been done to achieve your salvation and mine. Indeed, the salvation of every last person in this entire world has now been enabled by what Jesus has done. Nothing more can be added to it, nothing subtracted. All that remains for each one of us to do is to believe. To believe and put our trust in a personal way in Jesus Christ. Put our faith in him, believing that he is our Savior and our Lord. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. No more and no less. And it's only through Jesus. He is the only way. For as Acts 4, verse 12 says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And so today, I want to just ask you to consider, I want to invite you to contemplate making Jesus your personal Savior and Lord. If you haven't done that already, I want you to consider making that step today. It's the most important step. It is the most radical change in each one of our lives when we embrace the reality of Jesus' resurrection. The second change is this. There is no more fear in death. No more fear. Before his death in 1981, an American writer named William Saroyan, William Saroyan, he telephoned in, telephoned into the Associated Press his final remark, which was printed together with his obituary. This is his, this is his final words. Everybody has got to die, but I have always believed an exception would be made in my case. Now what? That was his final words. Now what? A lot of people live their lives without ever asking that question. Now what? We live our lives thinking the exception will be our case. I will live indefinitely. And perhaps if I will face death, I will be given plenty of opportunity to make things right with God before I go. Many people live their lives just avoiding that question altogether. Now what? What happens after I die? Will I just cease to exist? Will I just be like an animal and go into the grave? Is there an afterlife? Is there heaven? Is there hell? Where will I go? What determines my destination? And the Lord Jesus has a definitive answer to that question. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me also, that where I am, there you may be. You see, the only way that Jesus could keep this promise is if he did indeed rise from the grave. And so because he did, we are assured that his promise to all those who believe in him is as good as done. It's accomplished. And by faith in Jesus, our place in heaven is assured. 
And since the life of heaven will be so much greater than even the greatest day that you could possibly have in this lifetime, the greatest life that anyone could imagine for themselves will be paled in comparison to just a single moment in the glories of heaven. And so, what fear in death remains? That was the viewpoint that the Apostle Paul took when he wrote these words. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power, but thanks be unto God. He gives us victory over sin and over death through Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our victory. And so today we declare that all of the combined power of sin and Satan and hell and death itself have been defeated. Today we can declare that God's perfect plan of salvation and hope for eternal life has been completed. Why? Because despite all of the critics, all of the deniers, all of the doubters and the naysayers, Jesus is alive. And that single fact changes everything. It proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God, and therefore all of his promises are true. We can take him to the bank. They're guaranteed. And so if you have already embraced Jesus' life and received him as your Lord and Savior, you already know the assurance that comes with it. There's no fear left in death. You know, I can tell you today that the only fear I have in death is leaving my family behind. That's it. But other than that, the thought of going to see Jesus and what I'm going to experience on the other side, it thrills my soul the older I get. I just find it more and more calling me home. And the only reason that I would have any fear of dying is leaving my family. But you know what? I'm looking forward to the day when I see Jesus. I'm experiencing the reality that there's no fear left in death, and I hope you are as well. That is a huge change. No more fear in death. And the third and final change I want to draw to your attention today is when we embrace the reality of the resurrection personally for ourselves, it means we have a new master. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. To declare that Jesus is the risen Lord today. But to then go back to living your life exactly as you please without him tomorrow. Is to effectively deny the power of his resurrection in your own life. If we're going to come here today and say Jesus is alive, but then go back to living as though he's still dead tomorrow. We're denying the power of his resurrection in our lives. The reality of the resurrection means we live with him each and every day. He is the new master. He calls the shots. We are not our own. Remember, we were bought at a price. And so therefore, we honor God with our bodies. We honor him with all that we are. All that we say, all that we do, all that we think is yielded up to him. He is now in charge. He is our new master. He is a master worth living for. And my friends, he is even a master worth dying for. Jesus is the master of our souls. He is the master of our destinies. By faith in him, there is no more fear in death, 
No more fear in life. No more fear of anything that Satan or sin or death can throw our way. Because in him we are assured that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And so today I want to invite you. I want to invite you to consider entering into this life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you've already done that, I want to invite you to consider rededicating your life to him. If you know that you've been walking without him for a long time now, that you've been calling the shots of your own life, that he truly hasn't been your master, today you can rededicate yourself to saying, Lord Jesus, you are my master. I'm going to follow you from this day forward. And so I want to invite you to consider this as we sing our closing song. I'm going to invite the praise team to come forward at this time as we sing our closing hymn. And as we do that, I want you to consider again the opening story that I began this service with of Nikolai Bukharin. You know, he dedicated his entire life to communism, to the ideal of creating this utopia on earth without God in the picture. He helped Joseph Stalin ascend to power. He gave his best years of his life to promoting the cause. But in 1937, Joseph Stalin turned on him. He was arrested, tried on, trumped up charges. And in 1938, he was executed by Joseph Stalin's personal command. Everything he believed in had turned on him. And his final remarks were of a disillusioned man saying, I've given my life for nothing. He'd wasted it. And so here we stand today and we consider the alternative. In stark contrast, the Apostle Paul, he too went before a high ruler, Caesar. He gave testimony to the risen Christ as being Lord of all. The Apostle Paul too died on Caesar's personal orders. He was executed, beheaded there in their circus. But today, over every spire in Rome stands a cross. That is the power of the resurrection. Jesus is a savior worth living for and even one worth dying for. There is no more fear in death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Will you stand with us as we sing the closing song, In Christ Alone.